as Ladon and I were making plans for how to manage our energy in this busy first three weeks of September, we had decided this week, Friday, was, was blocked off. And there were good reasons for that, but uh, Friday at 4.30, I got a call. Hi, Mel, this is Jeannie. I grew up hundreds of miles away from any extended family. We were alone and didn't travel much in those days. Jeannie is a cousin of mine who I've met five times in my entire life, short periods of time. But a cousin with whom I felt I connected most. Jeannie was in town and she said, any chance we could get together this weekend? I said, tonight's the only time we got together and I was looking forward to just connecting and, and, and just discovering a little bit more about my own story that there were, there were gaps that I didn't know much about. And it was an awesome evening. LaDonna and I have two children, now both in their 30s. And as you might know, our children are adopted. From the time they were ours, our oldest came to us when she was four and a half months old and our youngest right out of the hospital. From the time they were ours, we regularly told them their story, where they came from, how they came to be ours. We felt they needed to know how a girl with a black face and a boy with a yellow face came to be ours because if they didn't have questions, other people surely would. When, when uh, they were young and we'd be together as a family, every once in a while a stranger would be looking at us and looking at us and would say, are your kids adopted? <laughs> it's like, way to go, Captain Obvious. Um, my wife never really liked this, but every once in a while I would feel in the mood and I would say, no. <laughs> I'd pause for a little bit and I would say, my first wife was black and her first husband was Chinese. <laughs> when, our, when our oldest uh, daughter was six and our youngest was four, a couple in our small group was having their first baby. And because uh, the, the woman and LaDonna were both nurses and because we were friends, we only did, would have done it because we were friends, and because LaDonna had a developing interest in photography and because... Even before the internet arrived, we were a generation that introduced this whole voyeurism piece. Everybody has to know your story. Well, that's another story. But anyway, uh, because of all of that, they invited LaDonna into the delivery room to do a photo journal thing of their delivery. And uh, the day arrived, it was a Saturday, and I had the kids. All they knew was that mom was at the hospital helping our friends have a baby. They're sitting at the table waiting for me to bumblingly put their lunch together and serve it, and, and they're talking with each other as I'm making the final preparations, and our son suddenly turned quiet and went into his pondering mode, and uh, he's four years old, and he knows his story. He also has a close buddy who knew his own story, which was different than my son's story, and they've been comparing stories, and now... He has a mother who has gone to the hospital 
to help friends have a baby. And he finally puts it together. And he set out to declare his truth. Here's what came out of his mouth. When I was a baby, I crawled into mommy's tummy and they had to go to the hospital to get me out, right? I'm standing there, pot and serving spoon in hand, thinking, okay, where do I go with this? <laughs> but our six-year-old knows exactly where to go with this. Very confidently and older sisterly-like, she says, no, Michael, you didn't go into mommy's tummy, and you didn't go into mommy's tummy. And very indignantly and somewhat defensively, he said, yes, I did. And he looks to me for affirmation. And I'm, okay. And she said, very indignantly, yes, you did. Or no, you didn't. I'm sorry, I'm getting this backwards. And she looks to me for affirmation, and I'm like, oh, man. Supper's going to be cold by the time our lunch is going to be cold. And once again, without looking at me because I was no help, he looked her in the eye and said, yes, I did. And then she says, no, you didn't. You were in another lady's tummy. And when you came out of her tummy, she knew she couldn't take care of you. So she gave you to mommy and daddy so you could be theirs and they could take care of you. And then with this grand flourish, she said, Michael, that's what adoption is all about. And then finally looking at me, she put her hands on her hips and she says, oh, there is so much I have to teach him. <laughs> Do you know your story? Are you living in your story, or do you have pieces of other story in there that you're trying to fit together and put in there? Last week, we began a Sunday morning teaching series in which we're reflecting on the grand vision of God for us, the story that God wants to write in us and for us and through us, which, which so often seems to be a mystery to us, just like it's a mystery to our sound text to try and figure out this ringing right now in my ears. <laughs> Paul states that vision in a very simple phrase in the book of Colossians when he says, You are made complete. Your story is made complete, full, whole, and fulfilled in Him. If you want to put the puzzle of your life together well, and, and the bold claim of Christians is that it's more than putting it together well, it's putting the puzzle together right. If you want the puzzle to be complete according to the way those pieces were designed, you've got to come to terms with Jesus, who was, as Paul has said in the first chapter of that book, not just a man. Nobody doubted he existed or that he was a man, but you had to see he was God. You are complete in him. And Paul has spent most of the first chapter of Colossians eloquently showing how Jesus fits into the picture as the likeness, the fullness, the one and only enfleshment of God in human form. You are complete in Jesus, who in himself is complete the fullness of God. Now, before we go any further, we need to take a step back and understand something. We need to understand the nature of this book and, and 
and answer again the question, what really is Christianity? What, what is this book? I, I love the way Greg Kukul um, puts it and wrestles with that question. He says, some people think of Christianity, the Bible, as, as a system that people follow, a, a structure, a, a way they structure life and follow. Or some people think of this book, Christianity, as, as, as a guide to living, some ethical principles to live by. Some people say this book in Christianity is talking about how to have a relationship with God. And then he says this. These answers all have some truth to them as far as they go, I guess. The problem is, I do not think they go far enough. They are all too thin. It's much bigger than that. The correct answer to the question, what is Christianity? is this, Christianity, and by extension, this book, is a picture of reality. It's an account or a description or a depiction of the way things really are. The way things really are. It's not just a view from the inside, a person's feelings or, or religious beliefs or, or spiritual affections or, or ethical views or relationship with God. It's, a, it's also a view from and of the outside. <laughs> it's a view of the world out there, of the world as it really is. Thank you so much, Cassie. <laughs> this book is the cover of the box, and it is the comprehensive, and it claims to be the one true story of reality. We can see that right from the beginning of the story. The opening line, you see, how you begin matters. Some of you are going back to university uh, this year and you're already starting to write your first paper. And one of the things we wrestle with most in writing a paper, one of the things we change most often when we compose a paper is the beginning. How do we start this thing? Right? One of the most significant ways we can compliment the author of a novel is, oh my goodness, she had me right from the first line. Right? And how does the story of reality begin according to the Christian story? The center of reality. The dominant feature of the big picture on the box and the puzzle, which all pieces have to fit, is this. In the beginning, God. That's the place to begin when we try to put the puzzle of our life together. That's the place to begin to get a higher up view on what is or isn't happening in my life right now. In the beginning, it's always God. Many of us at some point in our lives, and I, I have to put myself in that circle, many of us come to the point of, of wondering, questioning, or, or at least needing to affirm that it's actually credible to believe there really is a God. Or is it perhaps that believing God is the easy way out? It's a cop-out, a nice, outdated, unintellectual way of looking at life. Well, I, I love the way C.S. Lewis put it in his talk about his journey from being an atheist to believing in God. He realized that the thing that we, many of us stumble with, stumble over most, the problem of evil. He realized that that presented a bigger problem for those who do not believe in God than those who do believe in God. 
In the book Mere Christianity, he writes this, My argument against God was that the universe seemed so cruel and unjust. But how had I got this idea of just and unjust? A man does not call a line crooked unless he has some idea of a straight line. What was I comparing this universe with when I called it unjust? Of course, I could have given up my idea of justice by saying it was nothing but a private idea of my own. But if I did that, then my argument against God collapsed too because the argument depended on saying that the world really is unjust. Not simply that it didn't happen to fit my private fancies. So, in the very act of trying to prove that God did not exist, in other words, that the whole of reality was senseless, namely, I found I was forced to assume that at least one part of reality, namely my idea of justice, was full of sense. Consequently, he says, it's atheism that turns out to be too simple. It's not Christianity that is too simple and simplistic. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. You see, when it all shakes out, it comes down to this this watershed decision that's rather binary. Either nothing made something out of nothing or someone made something out of nothing. Both of those require faith to believe. Both of those present some huge philosophical challenges that the human mind cannot fathom. For someone who does not believe in God to make it sound like belief in God is too simple, it's just not true. There is something else going on. One of the group that has called themselves the, the new atheists, Richard Dawkins, tries very hard in his books to, to portray atheism as intellectually superior and theism, especially Christianity, as being unintellectual. One of his popular books is uh, The God Delusion, which is subtitled, Why There Almost Certainly Is No God. Um, almost certainly so sounds so humble, or, or is it sarcastic? Keith Ward, who, who along with Dawkins is an Oxford academic, is one who has engaged Oxford or uh, Dawkins in various ways, and, and um, he, he's written a book called uh, why there almost certainly is a God, <laughs> Doubting Dawkins. And uh, it's, it's, a, it's, it's quite an intellectual book, but in his uh, British humor kind of way, it's a fun book. And uh, he, he, in the introduction to that book, he pokes, a, in, a, in a sort of tongue-in-cheek way, he pokes a, a bit of fun at the absurdity of Dawkins, an Oxford professor claiming to believe that believing in God is intellectual. Here's what he says. In 1991, I was happily living as a professor of philosophy at King's College at the University of London when, out of the blue, I received a letter from the office of the Prime Minister in an official envelope, cunningly concealed inside a plain envelope, telling me that the Regis Chair of Divinity at Oxford was vacant and asking if he could give my name to the Queen. I had not the slightest idea what this meant, and I had to telephone Downing Street to ask how many names the Queen had been given and what she intended to do with these names. Well, as it turned out, I was being offered the job, and it was an offer I simply could not refuse. So, he says, I turned up at Oxford, having been transformed magically by Her Majesty from a philosopher to a theologian who was expected by many people to defend a whole set of religious beliefs as a professional duty. 
It was a definite slide down the ladder of academic respectability. From being a free-thinking and radical philosopher, I had suddenly, somewhere on the road from London to Oxford, developed what Richard Dawkins called a theological mind, and that, he claimed, was rather like developing some sort of mental illness. Now, here's the deal. Here's what he says. Even though Dawkins lived and worked in a university with one of the largest and ablest theological faculties in Britain, he went on refusing to admit that there was even a subject such as theology, and despite the fact that he and I had entirely friendly and rational personal contacts, he went on proclaiming that all religious believers were stupid, deluded, and dangerous. Despite the fact, he says, that many Oxford scientists are Christians, he went on saying that science and religion were intellectually incompatible. You see, one of the things that we have been fed is that the smarter you are, the less you need to believe in God. Well, the truth is there are very, very smart people on both sides of that question, much smarter than me. I, I, was, I was just this week doing a, a little bit of a survey, and, and I realized the number of books I've read just in the last three years on, on this whole subject. And I would encourage you, just for your affirmation and just to get your mind stretched a little bit in thinking, pick one of these books to read or another book. Uh, Mark Clark, a pastor from Vancouver, uh, has a wonderful sort of overview, and it's probably the simplest of all these books, called The Problem of God. Great book. Uh, my, one of my favorite authors uh, in this area is John Lennox, who is an Oxford professor uh, in mathematics. Uh, several books, Gunning for God, Why the New Atheists Are Missing the Target, uh, God's Undertaker, Has Science Buried God, and one on actually the, the, the first two chapters of Genesis called Seven Days That Divide the World. Uh, all very good books. Um, David Skeel, who's a, a professor of uh, law, I think, at the University of Pennsylvania, is it? I think, uh, has written a book more for artistic types called True Paradox, How Christianity Makes Sense of Our Complex World. And then uh, Keith Ward's book. Pick one of those books. Read them and, and think through again. Let your mind be expanded about the complexity of this world and about God. Folks, this world is a confusing place. The puzzles of this world are much bigger than the puzzles of our own life. At some point, the watershed question is, is there a God or is there not a God? And a big part of the answer to that is another question. Does the story of God, as he claims to tell it, make sense? Does it make sense of reality as I see it? Does it make sense of my life as I experience it? And I want to say that the more I read and the more I understand this story, the more this story is the only one that for me comes to terms with all of the complexities. And actually, the ultimate tilting factor for me is the puzzle piece, and we'll look, puzzle piece we'll look at next week, but that's next week. This week, in the beginning, God. At the heart of it all, the God who created the heavens, and the earth. Now we need to get our heads around how that statement came to be recorded as the beginning of the story. By whom is the book of Genesis written? Moses. Yeah, Moses. And when was the book of Genesis written by Moses? What was the occasion for Moses writing this book of Genesis? Well, we don't know exactly when. But, but we know approximately when, and we know the circumstances which caused him 
to put it down. It was composed over time during the difficult journey of God's people out of hundreds of years of slavery in Egypt to, to where? To a land that existed only in their dreams. Or, or was it a land that existed by the promise of God? They wondered about that. They doubted that, and it led them downhill every time they did. And it was written because they had forgotten their story. In the desert, with, with no sure source of food, or, or was it? If it was, it was certainly boring. With no obvious structures, leadership structures, laws, physical structures like homes and civic buildings that gave at least a sense of security and rootedness, none of that. And they were starting to say, we had it better as slaves in Egypt. And what does Moses do? He says, folks, you have to remember your story. We need to get our head out of the now out of what appears to be an unsure thing, out of the scariness and confusion of the world around us. And we need to see reality from a whole different level. Here is your story. In the beginning, God, when he tells them their story, this statement in the first three verses, or actually the first uh, chapter at least of Genesis, is, is, is a, a, a direct contrast with the stories that had been beat into their heads while they were in Egypt. Genesis 1, uh, which believers fight tooth and nail over, it's like, stop already. The significant piece of this story for the people of God was a story of who and of what, not of how and when. I've lost my place in my story. If you read the first few verses and know anything about Egyptian and Babylonian creation myths, you will know that, that what Moses was doing was very similar to what Jesus did when he said, you have heard that it was said to you, but I am telling you this. Only this is even more contrasting to what Jesus did. For years you have been beaten up literally with rods and assaulted with words, trying to force you to see that the, the one whom you call your God and who calls you his own, He's only one among many gods, gods who, who fought with each other and manipulates each other, manipulated each other, and gods who could be manipulated by people. Those gods of Egypt were obviously stronger and smarter. The stories of Egypt were a bigger reality and a better reality than your reality. But Moses is drawing the line in the sand and he's saying all those stories may have some echoes of the true story, but they are at best distortions of the real story. Here is reality. In the beginning, God, out of nothing, by the power of his words created the heavens and earth. Everything you can see with your naked eyes, everything you can see through a microscope or through a telescope, in the beginning, God. Here's reality. 
But it wasn't just a matter of having the power to create matter. When you believe in an all-powerful creator God, here's what that also must mean. There is no other way. You see, the one who had the power to make it all, automatically, by virtue of making it all, has ownership over it all. It's his. What you make is yours. We, we do believe that. We believe that creating something gives you a right over it, right? Where some of, some of you are following the absurdity in some regards, but a, 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 a certain sound sense of, yeah, it makes sense. Hundreds of millions of dollars worth of lawsuits right now regarding ownership rights with what are done with four musical notes, right? We made it. It's ours, period. You can't benefit from it. The one who made it all has ownership, which means authority over it all. He has a purpose for it all, and he has a plan in it all. Isaiah chapter 14, as I have purposed, so it will be. Isaiah chapter 46, I made known the end from the beginning, from ancient times, what is still to come. I say, my purpose will stand, and I will do all I please. From the east, I summon a bird of prey. From a far off land, a man to fulfill my purpose. What I have said, that I will bring about. What I have planned, that I will do. If there is a God, that's who He is. Rather than reminding them of what God had just done for them, part of the sea, which was a barrier for you guys, He has provided food every day so that you can live. Moses takes them back, all the way back. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And yes, that creation, that creation, Matter left on its own. Well, what does it say about matter left on its own? Chaos, orderlessness, and structurelessness. Empty. It's there, but it's not rich, meaningful, and full, and dark. Isn't that much of life as we experience it? And as we are afraid, it really is at its core. Chaotic and confusing. Empty. And dark. So here are the people of Israel, the people God rescued out of Egypt and called his own. Within days and weeks and months of experience of a deliverance so powerful, they had no way to explain it other than our God is greater. They're saying, Let us go back to Egypt. What are they doing? Well, they do exactly what we do. How do we think and live in the puzzle of our life? When the pieces don't fit our idea of what reality should be, we so easily and we so quickly and so naturally make the story all about me. Some of you have lived with chronic pain or with people in chronic pain, and you, you know the struggle, the mental energy it takes to not just focus on me and my pain. The story does not begin with the reassurance God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. The story does not begin by saying, oh, you are special, you are unique. It does not even begin by saying, there's a Jesus who's going to love you and die for you. 
And I'm not saying those are not important threads in the story or, or touch points that we need to be reminded of occasionally. But even as we process those truths, the number one thing we need to see and realize in new ways, this is not my story. The story is not about me. God's people whom he rescued from Egypt and is taking to the land of promise fall into the same trap we do. Look at my life now, today. Oh yeah, yesterday there was this crossing of the Red Sea, but what about today? I can't feel it, I can't see it today. The most important truth we need to work into our minds is that if there is one who made it all and has ownership of it all, authority of it all, purpose for it all, plans in it all, this is not my story. This is God's story. All of it. In the beginning, God. Do, do you know why that's so powerful in a positive sense? Do you think there's a God who made it all and put it all together? It's not going to complete his story? Do you think the God who put everything together according to an unbelievably and beautifully complex plan is not going to pull the whole thing off according to his plan? But what about me? What am I supposed to think sitting here in this desert? If God is so powerful, he created everything. Isn't that our question? So what is it that God does with his power? That's what Genesis 1-2 says. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the circus, surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. What does God do with his power? Marduk, the god of the ancient Near East creation myth, he cuts things in half. He smashes and destroys and breaks things up. The real God, when he sets out to do something, he's not in a hurry. He's not violent and aggressive. He offers himself. He does not force himself. The Spirit of God hovered, which is a word that implies softness and gentleness and patience over the surface of the waters. Does that mean he's not powerful? No. But he does not use his power in cavalier and destructive ways. And when he does use his power, what does the real God do with all his power? The rest of the chapter tells us he creates order out of the chaos. He, he fills the emptiness with beauty and life. And he brings darkness into light. No matter how chaotic or out of control your life feels, it's no more complex than the original disorganized matter. It's out of chaos that he makes order. Will you accept that he has not changed? No matter how empty your life feels right now, this God took that emptiness and filled it with life, full, bountiful, beautiful, productive life. And that is the fullness he has given you in Jesus it's not about what you see around you or what's happening to you. In Jesus, he has brought that to completion for you and in you. No matter how dark your world, it is Jesus that still is the light of the world. 
When the Israelites said, let's go back to Egypt, Moses says, no, 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 let's go further back. God, the God who created it all, who showed up and showed he was greater than the gods of Egypt, don't you realize that what he was doing when he was rescuing you, did you really think it was about you? How special you are, how much better you are than the Egyptians? This was not about you. He was claiming you for his story. This God has claimed you. He has adopted you as his own. So how does that help me fit the puzzle of my life together and, and, and how I should think about it? Again, I love the way Greg Kukul puts it in his book, The Story of Reality. The place to begin to put the puzzle of my life together is not to say God loves me and has a wonderful plan for my life. That's not an untrue statement, but if that's where we start, ever, if that's what we dwell on, it's an incomplete and misleading statement. The story, he says, is not about God's plan for my life. It's about my life for God's plan. And where does that leave us? What good is that for us? Well, the Old Testament ends with a statement that tells us, Malachi says, I, the Lord, do not change, which is a good thing because that means you, the descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. There's nothing God can't take from your story and make it meaningful and useful for his story. There's nothing that he can't leverage to make it his and beautiful. God is inviting me into his story, and if that's the way it is, he's the one who has the right to set the parameters. He has the right to figure out what is the best way to leverage even my pain, my emptiness for his story, which he's going to pull off in a blaze of glory. The entire book of Genesis, this book of beginnings, which is what Genesis means, is about how God, up to that point, has been writing his story through the people he claimed to show off his glory. Their story started way before Egypt, and their story, your story, if you're in it, will be here long after Egypt. For two years now, intermittently, I've been plotting and reflecting and journaling my way through the book of Genesis. Their story, as, as Moses has tried to help them see it, and I, I've been amazed at how the big names in the story, the patriarchs, as they were called, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to a man and a woman, how they did everything they could to make the story about themselves and to take over the story for themselves, to go ahead of God and try to make his story happen according to their plans. That's the story of all of the patriarchs, and it's the story of me. And what happened when they did that? For me, to this point in my journey through Genesis, the one big lesson in the book, it's a two-sided lesson, is this. From the first major decision of Abraham to take over from God in producing an heir his way and not God's way, two things happened all the way through. Number one, it just simply made their own life more difficult, more complex, and more confusing, and it caused them suffering. Their plans turned order back to chaos and confusion light back to darkness, fullness to emptiness. We are the ones who suffer. But the other side of that 
is that in every one of those situations, not one of their royal screw-ups does anything to alter, to halt, or to hurry God's plan for them and through them. What a God. One of the questions that we sometimes ask is, is God mad at me? We think we must have done something wrong because we know we do a lot of things wrong. We do them wrong because we forget that we're supposed to be his story. And we do it like it's our story. And we ask the question, is God mad at me? As I read this story, as he's putting their story together for them, they had plenty of reasons why God should be mad at them. What comes through so strongly is that God is not mad at me. He is always mad about me. Gently hovering over the chaos, emptiness, darkness, waiting for us to give in. This morning, if you've been trying to fight what God seems to be doing to you, take over and do what God is not doing. Doubting, shameful for some of the ways that you have taken over your story. Can you hear it that he is not mad at you? He is mad about you. He may not give in to your demands. He may give in to your demands and say, okay, have this one your way and you can suffer the consequences. But he will not stop trying to write his story, waiting for you to come back to the beginning and to see that he is so mad about you, he has come into you in Jesus to make you complete. In the beginning, at the beginning, at the start is always God. As we sort of try to move towards a landing here this morning, every time I fly, I'm uh, amazed that 25 minutes before we land, the airline says, we're beginning our descent. So we're beginning our descent here, okay? Well, it's not 25 minutes, but as we begin our descent this morning, I'd like us to look very briefly at one of the watershed moments in their story in the book of Genesis, chapter 32. It's a story about how they got their name as a people, Israel, Israel. And more importantly, why they were given their name. It happened in this encounter of God with Jacob that, that Moses reminds these people about. Um, Genesis chapter 32. Jacob's name means deceiver. And he lived up to his name. You never knew if you could trust what came out of his mouth. And what happened to us, him, was that nobody trusted him. And he always had to watch his back. Jacob was a deceiver, and Jacob was a fighter, a striver, driven. He took things into his own hands. But there came an encounter with God during which Jacob's name was changed to Israel. Genesis 32 is interesting to read in, in light of what this book is about, as we've talked about Moses reminding these people of their story, because this is the record of how they got their name the people of Israel, which is a reminder to them of what their, God, what their story really is about and how they'll be able to make it through their story. Jacob, who has spent years away from home hiding from his brother Esau because, well, he ripped them off and deceived them, stole from Esau the blessing, the inheritance that God promised Jacob. It's mine, so I need to grab it while I can, right? Now he's alienated from his brother He's had the blessing from God, but he doesn't have the land, the inheritance. And he's afraid it's going to slip away unless he does something about it. And, and so he realizes he's got to reconcile with Esau, which he doesn't know if it's going to happen. 
And see, so he makes this plan, as Jacob always did. He makes this elaborate plan, this costly plan, and hugely risky plan. With all these gifts he's going to give him in stages to, to sort of wear him down. And he sends all of these gifts ahead. He splits up all of his people and livestock in case Esau attacks. At least some will escape. Part of the plan. And that night, Jacob goes to bed alone. Genesis 32, 21. So Jacob's gifts went on ahead of him, but he himself spent the night in the camp. That night... Sorry, lost myself again. <laughs> that night Jacob got up, took his two wives, his two female servants, and 11 sons, and across the ford of the Jabbok. After he had sent them across the stream, he sent over all his possessions. So Jacob is left alone. Alone with his thoughts. Alone with his fears. Alone with all of the ways he has screwed up his life. Alone until along comes a visitor. A man came and wrestled with him until daybreak. All night long, fighting, because that's what Jacob does. Struggling, striving. Never give up and never give in. When the man saw that he could not overpower him, He touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled. So now he's in pain, crippled. But Jacob knows how to play through pain. He's done it all his life. He couldn't use his legs, but, but he could still use his hands. And Jacob hung on and would not let go. Then the man said, let me go. For it's daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. Jacob's already had God's blessing. But he knows he screwed it up. And here it is. The man asked him, What is your name? Say it, Jacob. What is your name? Who are you that you are worth the blessing one more time? And Jacob says it. My name is Jacob. I'm reading into the text a little bit here, but I, I think I'm right. I'm convinced that when Jacob said his name this time, he said it in a different way than ever before. He had always been proud of his name. My name is Jacob, and don't you forget it. You can't beat me. I'm more cunning than you. I can last longer than you. I will get my way. But this time, for the first time, Jacob says his name becoming overwhelmed with guilt and shame and maybe 
says it in repentance. Jacob has now come to the end of himself and he knows it. Verse 28. Then the man said, Your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with humans and you have overcome. Jacob said, Please tell me your name. But he replied, Why do you ask my name? Then he blessed him there. Who is this man? Well, we're told that even though Jacob doesn't know his name, Jacob knows that it's God himself or an angel sent from God. I'm with those who think that this is probably a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus. But the key thing here is what does the name Israel mean? And why did he give him that name? The name Israel means God fights. God strives. Your name is Israel, God fights, not Jacob fights. Because you have fought with God and, and won? Like, what's with that? How did Jacob win? The guy crippled him. Your name is God strives because you have fought with God and won? Let's press, press replay and look at that scene again, just a little bit more slowly. Jacob is fighting. The man touches his hip and cripples him, and Jacob refuses to let go he hangs on and he pleads for a blessing. Jacob has come to the point of realizing that he cannot fight for or deceive to get the blessing. It has to be given. And although it took a crippling blow to the hip, Jacob surrenders. He's pushed to the point of doing the only thing he can do, surrendering. And then Jake, God takes over. And once again, God does with his power what God does with his power. He makes order out of chaos. He fullness out of emptiness and light out of darkness in Jacob's life. Jacob does what? He surrenders to God. You see, if there is a God, if there is a real God, the only way to win with God is to surrender to him. That's the only way it works. He's going to write a story with or without me. In the end, the only way it will work is to surrender. And then Jacob gets the blessing that he was promised. Which reminds me of, of a picture we sometimes see. I'm just going to quickly reverse it or rehearse it again. That's the way we live with God and our story, right? Some of us, and, and we, we often arrive at points where we act like we don't need God in our story. We say it sometimes. We think it more often, but we live it even more often. I, I don't need God in my story. And we come to points where we begin to realize, you know what, I do need God in my story. And we, and we try to go with that for a while and, and we start some new practices like going to church, like maybe I'll pray again and those kinds of things. But there come a point, if we do that well, that we also begin to realize, oh my goodness, this is not about needing God in, in my story. I need to let God write my story. But what's the problem? It's still my story. Surrender is to come to the point of saying, you know what? What I need to really do is to allow God to write His story in and through me. 
And what is it I get when I do that? Well, now it's time to, to use the word the Bible uses. It doesn't use the word story to describe it. When the Bible talks about it right from early on, what it talks about, if there is a God, there's a kingdom of God. Kingdom. A sphere of authority. Anything that God creates is His, belongs to His kingdom. And to surrender is simply this. Surrendering is, is giving the things that I have been trying to control, my little kingdoms, the way I think I was designed to live, just simply giving them back to their rightful owner. And what do I get when I do that? Jesus made this wonderful promise in the Gospel of Luke. Your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. As Jan Hedinger says it in a book, Still Restless, he says, when we release to God everything that we are trying to control, what we get is everything our new king controls. He has been pleased to give you the kingdom. When our children were still preschoolers, a biracial black daughter and an Asian son. LaDonna was in a grocery store lineup and the kids were in the car playing with each other. And there's a woman behind her who was watching them and uh, intently. And at one point, just as LaDonna's putting all the stuff in there, the woman looked at her and said, are you foster parents? LaDonna couldn't quite figure out why she would ask that. It was only as she was putting these kids in the car seats and she looked at them both again, she realized why. And she was ticked. She was offended. Not because she didn't think posture parenting was good, but she wanted to go back and say to that woman, no, they are ours. We so much wanted them to feel like they were ours that we not only gave them our last name, we changed their names that they had been given at birth and gave them our names. And yes, both of them have names that, that point back to the story that we want them to know, God's story. But when we chose a name for our son, I also wanted to add one more dimension. I wanted his initials to be the same as mine initials years later he was now a young adult and I signed up for some I don't, I don't forget whether it was an email or a social media account and I put down my preferred username MJ Fair and I was ticked when I discovered that was already taken <laughs> until I realized who it was that had taken it was my son who had owned my initials and I said to myself yes years after Moses Isaiah as he speaks to people who had once again wandered off and were experiencing the consequences of that he calls them back to their same story in Isaiah chapter 40, he says, don't you know? Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood since the earth was founded? He sits enthroned above the circle of the earth. To whom will you compare me? Who is my equal? Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary and on and on. Read the rest of the chapter. 
Three chapters later, he says this about that great, powerful creator God. But now this is what the Lord says. He who created you, O Jacob, and made you into Israel. Do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name. You are mine. Yes, that means I own you, but it also means that everything I have is yours. In Jesus' blood, I will sign them over to you. As the worship team comes forward to lead us in a closing song, will you, will you once again work into your heart that the only way the puzzle's going to come together is if you start at the beginning or of it all to realize there is a God, an all-powerful creator God whose desire for you is to create order out of your chaos, light out of your darkness, fullness out of your emptiness. And really the only question I need to ask today is what is it I simply need to give back to him that I've taken over? My plans? My dreams? My desires? Who I think I am? What do I need to surrender? Give up to him. Stop demanding from him. Stop making up his agenda for him. Is there a pain point that's become your hurdle? Is there a must-have issue that's become a barrier? Is there a point where, as we used to say in the old days, the record is stuck? Is there a hanging-on point that you have not let go? Release, and you will receive, and you can live in the light of the name he has given you, his name. Lord, we confess our confusion, and most of all, we confess the confusion we create because of the short-sighted, narrow perspective demands that we have. Lord, we thank you for a big, big, all-powerful God who has made us his own. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together and sing.